Uh, Nick, am I doing the opening segment, or are you doing that one? I don't know, Spencer. You're going to steal my thunder again? Well, it was pretty successful Welcome last time. Welcome to Blacklist I... <laughs> Remarks. My name is Nick Stumphauser. I'm Spencer the Thunder Stealer Field. <laughs> That's never going to stick. <laughs> I'm getting it on a name tag. I'm emailing Jillian right now. Jillian, we need to change my name tag, please. <laughs> Have you seen uh, Twin Peaks? I feel like you're the type of person who would watch Twin Peaks. I don't. I didn't even know it existed. Okay. Wow. Well, there's a, a character in, in Twin Peaks who's an FBI agent, and he uh, this uh, takes place in the 80s, and so he walks around with a tape recorder, and uh, he will tell his uh, uh, secretary, who's not even in the state, he'll talk into the tape recorder, and, and I think he mails it to her <laughs> frequently for her to make memos of it. So when I had an assistant that I was working with, one of the best things I've ever done in my life I had my phone and I would send voice memos over that. Mm. And it got to a point where she called me one day and she goes, Spencer, we need to rework this system. <laughs> I said, what do you mean? She goes, today I got 14 voice memos from you. <laughs> and I said, okay, we'll rework the system because this isn't working. Anyways, uh, Nick, what is our topic today as you are the thunder speaker? The thunder speaker himself declares, uh, we're going to talk about mental health and Whose job is it to unfuck yourself? Mm, what a difficult topic. Yeah. I think really if we wanted to frame this a little bit more effectively, we would say whose job is it to address the mental health of the individual in our society? Yeah, that's what I said. Oh, exactly what you said. Sorry. <laughs> I wasn't listening. Let me clean out my ears. I thought, think there's a dirty Q-tip on the floor around here is somewhere. There? Yeah, I'm yeah. pretty sure. Underneath all the bugs. Maybe yeah. it's on top of the bugs. Uh so, Nick, when you think about this, what are your kind of initial gut reactions when you say responsibility of the individual um, for their to address mental health? Who's, whose responsibility is it to address individual mental health? I think it comes from my own personal experience with dealing with uh, depression and anxiety and realizing that nobody was going to fix me. I had to fix me. And if I wanted to get better... Um, I had to stop feeling sorry for myself, though I was perfectly justified in doing so. Mm -hmm. If I had, I had to be very honest with myself and answer the question, do I really want to get better? And for probably about half of the time that I was really dealing with this, uh, the answer was no, I didn't. Um, I didn't like the suffering, but there was, there's a comfort and a safety in being at that degree of suffering mm -hmm. that, that you can, um, uh, an associate of mine says, take hostages, mm -hmm. um, emotional hostages. Uh, it's a lot of power. It is. It is a lot of power. And not that it's used all the time with malevolence, but regardless of that, you have to, um, I believe, a large majority of mental health is the responsibility of the individual who's suffering themselves. Mm -hmm. I also think we should get into talking about the responsibility of those individuals who may have caused the problems in the first place. For example, if you're a, you know, a child of abuse, it's obviously wrong to victim blame. Um, but I think conversely, uh, and just sort of to lay out the roadmap here, we can address the idea of, okay, you were abused, you were raped, you were whatever, molested as a kid. What are you going to do about it now? And uh, there's an author, Augustine. Oh, you gave me the book. 
Spencer gave me the book. Augustine Burroughs. Oh, yeah. Really, really impacted a lot of how, how I think about this when, in terms of personal responsibility. And um, he even went to the extreme of talking about rape mm -hmm. and, and how to deal with it. And most of us aren't dealing with rape. Most of us aren't dealing with, you know, abuse as children. We're dealing with tragedy and trauma of a, you know, of a lesser degree. But I think the rules still apply. What about you? How much? I feel like you didn't object yet, and and that's I have a record. Yeah, thank you. I at? appreciate that. We're a four minutes thirty in. Uh, it's not because I think it's because you said every like some pretty solid platitudes, which are hard to <laughs> to disagree with. Like it's it's part of partly the personal responsibility. Like yes, yeah. it is partly. Well, I mean, I do know some people would disagree with it. I think there are plenty of people who I don't know anybody who would disagree, which says it is not at least in part personal no i mean i know plenty of people who who are professional victims and, and and their head pops off their pillow in the morning with how can i be a victim today oh i do too but if i if we if they joined like if i could clap and they joined us right here and i said hey do you think you hold even i an iota to develop yourself that person really screwed you up but to get you hold at least an iota of responsibility i think they go yeah sure i hold some responsibility in this now it's mostly their fault and the reason i'm screwed up because when my mother forced me to eat peas but i still think that they would say that they hold at least some iota to put some effort towards it i think i think that is not worth getting hung up about sure so i guess i'll right. return it to you all right um so i think uh, that there is some overlap in all this so i back when i was in high school probably my junior year i had the great opportunity of going to a um, moot court competition. It was held by the Student Statesmanship Institute. It was a week-long course in which we were given a Supreme Court, Michigan Supreme Court case that had actually been decided. We were divvied up Ooh, into individual teams. I was a, My team was me, and my competitor um, was a single person. Everybody else had team members, but they decided <laughs> that I didn't need a team member, apparently, or I was just too difficult to work with. I'll let you decide which one. Yeah, what could it be? Uh, and then we had the entire week to um, learn all the case law, research all the topics, develop our argumentation. And then throughout the week, we had attorneys and judges um, and different law students coming in and totally ripping our cases apart just for 12 hours a day. I think every, almost everybody in that class had a, some mental breakdown during the course of it because it was four wow. hours of sleep a night, very difficult stuff. Like these are the types of cases which high powered attorneys want to debate in front of the Michigan or the US Supreme Court. So. I loved it. Absolutely stupendous experience. And so we ended up that week um, at the Michigan State Supreme Court with Justice Zara presiding. And I was able to present my argument um, and then rebuttals in front of him and several other justices on the Michigan Supreme Court um, and have a nice back and forth with them. But as part of that, our uh, instructor was actually Rachel Den Hollander. Um, and Rachel has been recently in the news as the original accuser of Larry Nasser. Um, and she was trained as, as a lawyer. And before that, those accusations um, came out against Larry, she was actually teaching at the Student Statesmanship Institute. And as part of the course during that, this is a very long-winded story, but it does have, does have a meaning. Um, we read a book, which I just ordered again. I do not know the title nor the author. If you're interested, people listening to the podcast, who am I kidding myself? No, <laughs> listening to the podcast. Shoot me a message. I'll find it to you. Um, but it talks about the overlapping responsibilities in our society, and it identifies seven different groups in our society and how they interrelate with one another. Um, in this 
perspective affects my political views, it affects my economic views, and it definitely affects uh, my standpoint on this. So it starts with the individual, individual, and I would say from a mental health perspective, ultimately the mental health of an individual rests ultimately with an individual. Now that doesn't mean that other people don't have a responsibility to contribute to that, but I think the buck stops with the individual. I think then the family has some responsibility in that. I think that the if a person caused an issue, they have responsibility in that. I think if they're part of a social group, maybe that's a church, maybe that's a nonprofit, maybe that's just even a friend group, they have responsibility in that. Maybe employers have responsibility in that. I think society as a whole has some responsibility. Maybe the government holds some responsibility. So I think it's a pretty big, everybody has some responsibility um, in this in general and different people have different amounts given different situations. So how is that for a platitude? Everybody's responsible yeah. in different differing amounts. The, I, I could disagree with it, but in certain areas, but I don't know that it's necessarily worth worth it because I agree we both kind of just outlined the general playing field here. Uh, one thing that I was going to say is that, and this is going to be a, a sideways move and we'll see you know, where it gets us. Um, so let me ask you this. Who or whom is allowed to make Spencer Field feel guilty? I think the person who is allowed, so let's, I'm just going to process this out loud uh, sure. and which will not make for the most succinct answer. I would say that guilt is an internal experience which arises internally external circumstances can make it easier for guilt to arrive um, arise but at the end of the day it's an internal experience that is happening nobody can like pour guilt on me interesting and so i think that different individuals in my life have different abilities to create a situation where those feelings of guilt are more or less likely to arise so i think that the only person who is allowed to make me feel guilty is the person that i allow to make myself feel guilty if i replace the word guilt with anxiety or an anxious or uh, depressed or anything like that would your answer hold no up? no okay and why how would that change um so i would say that depression okay so my therapist mother is going to throw something at me um later i'm sure but i think that most of the time outside of clinical situations where there's an actual chemical imbalance in the brain that the feelings of depression that everybody suffers with, maybe not the clinical versions, the feelings of anger or sadness are internal experiences, internal happenings, which are uh, affected by external happenings. There's no, when, you know, my dog dies, that doesn't cause me to feel sad. That's just something which happens outside of me, which then allows these emotions to be evoked more easily. Um, but there's not a direct response. So, yeah, that's kind of the slippery slope that I was hoping that we could walk toward. Now, did I just jump off the cliff? No, you, you just kind of brought us right to the edge. And this is what I want to talk about. Um, so it there's the personal responsibility to, uh, and I think we could both agree so far, we have a personal responsibility to be healthy mentally, just as we might have a personal responsibility to be healthy physically. Sure. And I think there's, you know, there's a healthy analogy there. Now, before we keep going on this, I want you to finish this thought, but who is that responsibility to? 
I think it's uh, to ourselves to the degree with which we value ourselves and to others to the degree with which we are in a social contract. Okay. So you'd say both self and others. Correct. And others being defined pretty nebulously. At the, well, yeah. I mean, I, I think um, Jordan Peterson just talks about this when he says... It's not a podcast unless <laughs> Nick mentions Jordan Peterson, folks. Or Sam Harris. That, that the, the ratio has changed. But the ratio has changed, yeah. yeah. Keep going, though. Uh, but he said, okay, if you you know a, a thousand people, mm-hmm. give or take, and you do a good thing, you can positively impact a thousand people. And even though that might only slightly impact them positively, and then that impact might only slightly impact the thousand people that they know, you are two degrees away from impacting one million people. The butterfly effect. The butterfly effect, positively. Um, Same thing with negatively. So to the degree with which you think that holds truth, I think is to the degree with which you have the responsibility to, I have uh, a follow-up question, but I don't want to go there. Keep going down the original sure. road there. So I think this analogy to physical health is useful. So it's like if you want to be a you know a good uh, son or brother or dad or something, and you have type two diabetes because you eat garbage and you don't exercise and you sit all day, um, you know you are not fulfilling your responsibilities and to others or yourself. To others or yourself. Now. Can we talk about, uh, you know, the government who does, you know, who screwed us all by advocating the standard American diet and uh, propagandizing the world to say that you should eat, you know, X, Y, and Z when you really shouldn't? Um, yes, we can say that they're responsible. Yeah, we can blame people all day long. We can blame, we can blame teachers for teaching it, parents for instructing it, genetics, marketing departments, yeah, all those things. But at the end of the day, no one is going to make you less fat, but you, you've got to be the one. To educate yourself and put in the effort and change your lifestyle. Sure. It's got to be you. No one else is going to do that for you. And I think the same thing is true with mental health. Um, so you you can blame anyone and everyone all the live long day. But at the end of the day, if you genuinely want to get better, it's got to be you. Now, here's the shift that, that I'm really curious about. So when I asked you, whom is allowed to make you feel guilty or anxious or depressed? And it sounds like a lot of what you're saying is that there are things that happen in the environment in someone's life situation that can make it easier for them to adopt an emotion of anxiety or depression or a state or whatever. So my question is this. This is something that I'm very much struggling with. Let's say I uh, commit a crime of some sort. Sure. The situation that i've put myself in Mm -hmm. um and the response that the authorities might have will be one of guilt provoking we'll say the environment might make somebody feel guilty it would be let's talk about percentages they would be more likely to feel guilty yes sure um but uh, according to your logic and something that i'm i don't know which way i fall on yet or according to your i guess maybe argument that person can still choose whether or not they feel guilt. Yes. I think that they have a ch- some choice in the matter. And I think that through many activities, one has a greater and greater influence on those reactions. Uh, like meditation, would you? I, I would say propose? one of many. Okay, yeah. yeah. Um, I'm curious. Is there another one that I m- might be surprised to hear? I don't think so. I think meditation is important. Um, but I think that informal meditation is more important. Okay. Uh, so when we typically say meditation, everybody who's listening, ha, uh, gets this image of 
uh, somebody sitting cross-legged under a tree with nice soft heart music playing. Sure. And that I think the important parts of meditation are when you're on the freeway and there's a traffic jam that yeah. instead of flipping out, you tune in and you feel your breath or you feel yeah. the seat. Okay. Oh, I right. can, yeah. And there's other, like I'd say, uh, working out, I think helps you right. tune into that. I think eating, like having a good, healthy body helps you tune into that. I think having good social connections helps you tune into that. But many things we'll talk about the ingredient list for mindfulness right. another day. Okay. So if that's the case, if we hold the reins, if we can steer our boat across the stormy sea um, and choose these, these emotions, mm -hmm. my question is, are you obligated to feel guilt in that situation? Are you mm. obligated to feel anxiety? You know, if I commit a murder and will myself to no longer feel guilt, sure, am I morally uh, culpable? Culpable? Am I am I infringing on something? And so, uh, something that I'm struggling with is if I have to put energy into uh, this, you know, environment mm -hmm. to change how I respond to it. Am I denying the reality of the situation? Am I fighting what is true? Sure. And so to go back to like something like mental health or depression, you know, this person's depressed and they work really damn hard to get themselves out of it. Mm -hmm. But if you examine it and, and they ask themselves like, why did I have to work so hard? You know, it's not a chemical imbalance. Like I genuinely just think like life is shit. Okay. Am I kidding myself? Am I just fabricating a more comfortable world for myself so I don't have these uncomfortable or bad emotions or, or states of mind? What do, what do you think about all so that? So there's about three big questions there that you're, I think you're yeah. asking. So I'll try to hit them one at a time with the caveat that, of course, this is Spencer making up bullshit on the fly. Um, but that's how I live most of my life. So it's, it's not a problem. All right. So kind of starting with the last question, which is if I think life is, as you said, truly shit mm -hmm. and I really have to work hard to see life differently, am I kidding myself? Well, since you don't have a privileged perspective of the world, however you see the world is just as valid as however you saw the world in the past, um, because there's not. Don't don't go too quickly over that. I think that's a really important point. Okay, please hold. Yeah, yeah. Def, I want you to kind of unpack that a little bit more. I'm okay. curious what you mean by that. So, I think that um, I grew up Protestant, and in the Protestant world, we have the idea of a God, and God sees the world as it truly is, okay. and His perspective is the ultimate true perspective. If I think pecan pie is better than apple pie, and God thinks apple pie is better than pecan pie, God is actually right, and apple pie is better than pecan pie. But we all know God knows pecan pie is better, so let's not get too Amen, distracted brother. by that. Uh, <laughs> And so there's this idea of this like universal truth when it yeah. comes to reality. And so Nick and I, and if you've listened to this podcast before, know that we have this fundamental disagreement on how truth breaks down. Yeah. I see truth and you have these quantitative truths like mathematic truths, um, which are universal. It doesn't matter what you think. That's just how they are. But there's also qualitative truths. And the way you see life is almost by definition a qualitative truth. And since when you're when you're looking at life around you, if you see doom, gloom, misery, suffering, depression, pain, that is certainly a perfectly valid way to see that. And that has legitimacy to you at that time. But if you then shift your perspective to a world full of joy and peace and goodness and overcoming 
of suffering and uh, shaping of of individuals through suffering, then yeah. that perspective is just as valid as the original perspective. And I think the important thing to understand, and it takes mental gymnastics, which are either unwise or very wise, depending on how you think about it, <laughs> is to be able to see the same world, to not divide, like uh, not reject facts about the world around you, like the refugee crisis or um, systemic racism or economic injustices or even physical injustices. You don't have to deny that you were physically abused as a child. Um, that wouldn't be wise to do. And if you deny that and you live this happy life because you deny it, well, then you're violating a, a quantitative truth. Yeah. But if you can still allow that quantitative truth, those pillars, if you will, to be true and shift your perspective to see them differently, however you look at those pillars is just as valid. There is no better perspective um, from a, a truth standpoint, in my opinion. Now, there's ones which are more functionally helpful, but I don't think that there's yeah. one which is more true in that sense of the word. I don't think that word works in that connotation anymore. I think I'm struggling with this like postmodernist approach to truth in terms of something. So I think it might be helpful for you and I and for whomever's listening ha, to Russians. get <laughs> Russian bots to get uh, a specific example. So let's sort of create a, a hypothetical. A hypothetical. Um, we'll, we'll name this person Stan. Stan. And uh, so Stan was, uh, well, this is prescient given the news. So let's say Stan was abused when he was um, nine years old by a Catholic priest in Pennsylvania. Sure. All right. So so Stan was, was kitty fiddled by Father Michael. And uh, um, and let's say as, as, you know, parents were uh alcoholics and, sure. and beat him all right so he's got a pretty pretty shitty setup in yep. life going starting right pretty far behind the starting line all right so he's 25 years old he's uh overweight because he's used food as a coping mechanism um maybe he smokes cigarettes um and uh only had his ged and went to community college sure um hasn't been able to find a, a partner in life yep long list of all, all these things. All right. So he decides to get his act together. Mm -hmm. And I mean, you hear stories like this all the time. Somebody has the quote unquote, come to Jesus moment. Yeah, what, it, what you see in Oprah every day. Exactly. Yeah. You know, and he, he drops 150 pounds, you know, he gets, uh, gets shredded. Yeah. Finds a beautiful partner. Yeah. yeah. Okay. So you're saying that, that Stan has, has, functionally or he, he has made a choice to become more functional as a human being and that that is not in conflict with the truth of his, his tragic upbringing I no think, i think i i would say that that is a tr true statement yeah. that you have uttered okay i would agree with that my question is is there a way for stan to both fully hold the truth and the being and accept his tragedy and not deny it in any form and say in the same breath life is is worth living absolutely but it is damn hard okay so that's what i'm really interested about and i think that's the the core of a lot of things with mental health is people can kind of turn themselves around and we know that they can be the ones to make the change, but sort of that core, um, I don't even know how to describe it. Like the ability to just skill set principle. Yeah, I don't know. I, I think I'm more talking about like 
this concept of, of changing the way you look at the world and that not being a form of self-delusion. Okay, so I have – there's a, two thoughts I have on this. So my mother is a cognitive behavioral therapist. Okay. And cognitive behavioral therapy has a lot of questions in it like – is this serving you? Is this true? What could be a better thought process? How could you engage with this thought to correct it? And so we were having this conversation the other day um, about a more Eastern approach to psychology and a more Western approach to psychology. So a very Western approach to psychology is in my mind, if if you are a boat and your emotions are the rudder, cognitive behavioral therapy purports that you can essentially have a steel rod from that rudder. And by engaging with your emotions, you can say, you know, uh, my mother beat me. That means she didn't love me. No, that doesn't mean that I'm unlovable. Yank rudder to the right. I I will yank my emotion. Like emotions get online. It sounds like you and I have a similar feeling to cognitive behavioral therapy. And and she, of course, I'm sure would defend it and say it's differently. And that's an oversimplification. So I, I will put that on the table that that is, that's not, totally fair and doesn't fully represent her opinion. But in my understanding of cognitive behavioral therapy, most of the time it is similar to that. I think that if that analogy holds true, instead of as a steel rod you have, you have a pool noodle, probably a wet pool noodle (laughs) attached to that, that rudder and that you can encourage it one way or the other. And that over the course of your life, you can learn how to work with the twists and the bends of that pool noodle yeah. And you can become very skillful at it over time that that pool noodle is might as well be a steel rod because you know how to work with its bumps and its curves and its creases to make it just as effective. But you can't just yank it back and forth like you can a steel rod. Rather, it's a pool noodle and you have to learn to work with it. So thought one. Thought two is that the my major problem with like motivational speakers um, and that 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 world is that they often deny the truly crappy stuff that happens. Yeah. They breeze over it. It's like this yawning pit and they build a bridge over it. And they're like, we're just not going to talk about that. Mm-hmm. Or we're going to like get up ahead of emotional steam and kind of choo-choo over that. And like when you wake up in the morning, instead of dealing with this issue, <laughs> you need to get 10 push-ups in and then talk to yourself in the mirror and then get to work and make it happen and go, go, go. And it's not about dealing with the issue. It's yeah. about diving in. And I think, bringing up Stan here. My thought for Stan is that in my opinion, the truly healthiest life is to both thoroughly engage in every way with that abuse, recognize that it happened, recognize that it caused damage, recognize that it was wrong, recognize that you were a victim and at the same time say, while that happened, I have a choice to decide how I'm going to react to this. Maybe not how I'm going to feel to it because I might feel disempowered or I might feel weak or I might feel vulnerable in honoring those emotions and saying, while these still arise, I'm going to do something else and I'm going to engage with these. And then here's, I think the trick is that oftentimes we think of emotions in a linear scale. We think of either I'm feeling disempowered, I'm feeling empowered, and this is a a two-dimensional slider. And in reality, I think it's a three-dimensional slider. When in uh, behavior nope and um uh come on spencer this is four years ago you should know this uh nope uh 
organizational psychology okay. uh, in the workplace, there's this idea about um, pain and reward. And most people think about this on a linear scale. Either you're experiencing a lot of pain and little reward or experiencing a lot of reward and little pain, and it never the two shall meet. Mm. But in organizational psychology, a fundamental principle is that these are two separate scales and that you can be experiencing both extreme wow. reward and extreme pain at the same time. Mm. And wow. the ability to bifurcate those two things, I think, is what's important. So I think this, the life skill that Stan has to learn, and the one which I'm still learning, is while this is total shit, scale one, mm -hmm. I can still be okay, scale two. And the further that gap can go, not artificially speaking, but actually truly speaking, is the more effective way. So bringing it back to our topic, who holds responsibility for this? I think that the individual is the person who ha has their finger on that dial mm. and the community around them can help blow their hand in one way or another. They can put breezes, they can make it easier, they can grease the wheels, they can remove obstacles, they can help move things around. But at the end of the day, the only person who gets to control those dials is the individual. Um, so the individual responsibility rests with the individual, but I think that as a human and as participating with other humans and having relationships with other humans and being part of a society and all of its different forms, I have responsibilities to go kick rocks off of other people's sliders, if you will, Interesting. in one way or another. All right. That's my monologue on the situation. Well, let me ask you this. Why might somebody try to become more functional? I think that it's an inherent um, part of the individual. Um, uh, Brian uh, Netlingham, if you're listening, you can throw something at me later um, for an over-reductionistic perspective. But I, um, Elvin Plantinga has this idea called properly basic beliefs. And in a vastly oversimplified version of this, these are beliefs which we just hold true not because of anything, but because of their inherent trueness. So like for me, I believe other humans have value, not because of anything, but just that truth in and of itself. It, it's turtles all the way down. Mm -hmm. I just hold that to be true. And I think for some people, they want to live a powerful, engaged life where they're making impacts in the world around them. And the reason they, they might have some justification for that, but I think the people that I see moving the world are the ones who just believe it turtles all the way down. Um, mm. It's just this innate belief in that you can try to help people discover that and you can help create that somewhat like you can go listen to a tony robbins presentation but it's not turtles all the way down and when that ground shakes um then the, the th that belief breaks if you will okay so and, i'm gonna turn this back on you now yeah. because I, this is not nick interview spencer um although <laughs> this, this that's is more nick trying to understand this very hard and you're saying things that are well it's not a hard principle it's just hard to apply like Bench pressing 450 pounds, it's pretty simple. Like you make <laughs> it go from here to there and then back down to here without dropping it on your neck. Like, yeah, pretty simple. But the application of it is pretty difficult. I personally have not quite made the leap to understanding it yet either. But but what were you going to say? So when you're talking about Stan's situation and he lived this crappy life before and he kind of put the stake in the ground and then he kind of moved forward with that or maybe it was a slow transition who when if you have a friend who is stan uh -huh. 
Um, and maybe that's a personal friend. Maybe that's a work colleague. Maybe that's somebody in, in your, uh, you don't go to church, but just your general, no, it's about a, your, your, your community as a whole, just where you live, whatever relationship you want to define to stand. What relationship to his responsibility do you think you hold? Or does a person in general hold? Maybe not Nick Stumphauser, but just John Doe. I think I have the responsibility to not make it harder for him. Okay. I don't have the responsibility to make it easier. Okay. I think that if I make it easier, I'm being a, a good and kind person. Sure. But uh, at no point is it my responsibility to um, to make it easier. And when you say it is my responsibility to not make it harder, what entity do you hold that responsibility to? I don't understand. So if I, we talked about earlier, the type two diabetic and sits on the couch all day and eats potato chips. Uh, we oh, said he yeah. holds that responsibility to himself and to his family. Well, I guess just to, to whatever position he is in my, in my social sphere. So you if, hold, if you, he's in your business. Yeah. If he's in my business, right. So we have a, a, an agreement like in that social contract, mm -hmm. um, for for general well-being and i think that's just kind of implicit in there if he's my brother i obviously you know want my family to to be to have a, a high amount of well-being so you'd say your responsibility is to this social contract between the two of you i think the social contract is what delineates the responsibility yeah and it is the the entity to which the responsibility is owed no, I think Stan would be the entity to which the responsibility is owed. Okay, so the social contract is essentially the means in which the responsibility is communicated. I think it's just the uh, it's it's the outline, it's the agreement, it's what lets me know that there is. Because I would say you there. hold, and I, you can disagree with me on this, sure, but I would say that you hold responsibility both to Stan and to that that larger social organization. Um, but I think I, I don't, I don't mean contract as an organization. I mean, like just two people who agree about, um, a certain thing. So we have entered into a, so, so for sure. example, if it were you, um, there's no organization to which I, I owe this, right? but to you, based on our social contract of just friendship, I, it's my responsibility to not make you more depressed sure. by kicking you while you're down. Do you think that there is ever a position in which the, your responsibility extends beyond not making it harder to putting forth actual positive forward movement no interesting I, I, I that's tough i think that kind of goes to the question of, of um you know the, the purpose of a of a human life uh, is it survival is well it... we ended up there again yeah that's the thing these things are all interconnected but i think to answer that question you have to answer like what is the purpose of it how about a partner like a romantic partner, like, like a yeah. life partner. Yes. Um, I think that's that's a, a social contract with a lot more gravitas that, that yeah. again would just I think it would follow my same logic originally, and I think in that situation, by nature of the social contract, um, there is actually more by nature of the relationship itself, there is a desire for the well being of the other person, and so you kind of within that relationship, just strive to make the other person happy and, and, and high functioning, high functioning. Okay. So then here's where we kind of have a, a little line of closely connected dots. We're now going to reach for a dot on the other side okay. of the hill. Going back to a question you asked earlier, 
which is if I break the law, yeah, am I responsible to feel guilt about breaking the law? Right. Like, are you? Oh wow, sinning. That sure. just slipped out. Hello. Uh, it's almost like you grew up Catholic or something. Something like that. By Freudian slip, anybody? By um, refusing that responsibility. So I hear the question. I want to ask you the question, but give you the context of we've talked about who you owe this responsibility to, to, to um, help them get better. We've talked about how the responsibility is to communicate it and who you owe the responsibility to. So given your line of answers there, how does that line of answers apply to this question of, do I have responsibility to feel guilty for doing something wrong? Yeah. Interesting. Um, I think to that end, it, it would, it would follow that you, you do have the responsibility. And to who do I have that responsibility? To those that are affected by the, the decision that you made. Sure. I think that would make sense. And talking back to Peterson and the butterfly effect, right? do I have the responsibility to just the individual I affected or to everybody who has been butterfly affected by that. Right. And I think in that situation, there's, there's the social contract of people who you are aware of, but then there's also a humanistic and globalist view that you hold that I hold that I think if people, um, subscribe to the idea of the butterfly effect would also hold pretty like i don't think there's that much of a leap there which is basically um it's almost like you are responsible for being a good person for the well-being of everybody and, and i think what's interesting is that i think we kind of just stumbled across a secular morality uh we didn't stumble across it we walked head into it so it's you know if it's this isn't a you know obviously of divine divine command theory and the ten commandments and whatnot and for a long time people have been accusing atheists and whatnot like where do you get your morality it's like you can kind of make this argument yeah it's the turtles much. all the way down argument though it's, it's it is i mean but so is is divine command theory at well, the end of the day yeah we won't go down that one okay so we're running out of time i want to throw one more crowbar sure. in this um just because we have a nice collection of crowbars going on right now. I don't want to make sure it's a symmetrical crowbarring. So you would say that if you do something wrong, you hold responsibility to the person you did wrong to directly and those you did wrong to indirectly because there's a social contract between you to do so. Correct. Do you hold responsibility to feel something or do you hold responsibility to do something? The deeper question to that is what kind of person does it make you if your feelings and your actions are disparate? Meaning I perform an action and don't feel guilt, though the action merits a guilty response. What kind of person am I? Yeah. And the flip side of that being, I don't want to wake up and go to the gym in the morning, but I do anyways. What kind of person does that make me? Yeah. So are good people the ones who both do good and have that innate motivation to do so? Or are good people just the people who do the good things? And if you don't have that internal, 
you know, voice or motivation or desire to feel guilt when you do something wrong, does that make you a bad person? Good question. In my little social contract of a world, the way I've constructed the world, and this might be because I still suffer from Asperger's and most of how I present <laughs> is a damn good acting job. Yeah. Um, and so I had to learn how to do this and I react emotionally differently which right. means I essentially don't react emotionally like most other people do. I'm very cold-hearted, um, innately speaking. Now I can put on a pretty, pretty good um, uh, emotional expression, yeah. but that's usually not very authentic. Right. Uh, and so that's an always struggle. So given that caveat here, yeah. when I look at the situation, I say the good people are the people who do the good action or don't do the bad action, and it's frosting on the cake if your emotions align mm. with it. But at the end of the day, if I've passed, if I'm drowned and the lifeguard has pulled me out of the ocean is performing CPR on me. I don't think that the lifeguard is bad because he doesn't want, he thinks I'm gross because I'm covered in slime and I'm, he's, I'm a dead body. He doesn't want to perform CPR on me versus the lifeguard, which gives no thought to that and does CPR anyways. I don't think that one is a better human than the other. And, and so a thought that I had, cause I've been playing with this a long time is whatever it is that pushes you to do that action despite whatever your uh, desires might be mm -hmm. is also you and you can't discount that yeah the force which overcomes your emotion right so though you don't want to go to the gym but you do or though you don't feel guilty but you still make amends there is still that that piece of you that is pushing either way and i think i've overlooked that for a very long time yeah i would say that that is a and that might be depending on the situation a more revealing understanding of who you are than the myers-briggs and on that note <laughs> <laughs> your discount code for the myers-briggs is blacklisted 10 get 10 percent off by going to myersbriggs.com forward slash blacklisted remarks use the offer code blacklisted 10 with that i'm spencer field your crowbar throwing host and i'm nick stumphauser letting you know that that's not a real discount code see you again next <laughs> that was time but entertaining